do. Full speed ahead. Head with Mr. Matt to children's worship. The rest of us, you can uh, grab your Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians this morning. It just, this will annoy me all day. All right, 1 Corinthians. It's good to see you all. I, I feel like at some point, we're just, I'm just going to tape like $5 bills to the bottom of these couple rows. And I'm not going to tell you what week, but one of these weeks, right? So uh, it's, it's good to see all of you here competing for those back five rows. So love you. It doesn't work. I just come down to you, right? I'm going to get there eventually one way or another. So, hey, why don't we pray and uh, spend some time enjoying God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm grateful for this morning, for the opportunity to worship together. Worship through song, worship in prayer and appeal to you, worship in praising your great name. Uh, And as we look at the truth in your scripture, the clear revelation that you've given to us and the clarity of what it is, I, I pray that uh, it would be a time to give great praise and glory to who you are. And uh, as we do, that it would uh, continue to be uh, a unifying bond for us as your church, that, that it would draw us closer and in uh, deep relationship and love for one another so that we might uh, bring praise and honor and glory to you in all things. Help us in that. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, we began, let me catch you up real quick in case you uh, haven't been here the last couple weeks. We began last Sunday a series in uh, a letter of the Bible known as 1 Corinthians. That's 1 Corinthians because he writes a letter known as 2 Corinthians that we'll we'll look at some other time. But uh, in this, uh, we kind of laid a foundation of where we were, the Apostle Paul writing to a physical, tangible, real church in the first century dealing with some very real problems. Now, if you uh, haven't kind of grown up in the church world, uh, this, is, this is what you got to deal with during this time. Uh, the church in Corinth, uh, we said, was as kind of problematic as any church that you would see in all of the New Testament. In fact, First, first and Second Corinthians are uh, perhaps the harshest of rebukes in all of the New Testament letters that Paul writes, save maybe Galatians, but uh, 1 Corinthians is longer, and there's a laundry list of issues that they're dealing with. Uh, and so if you don't kind of do this Christian thing, and this is maybe you're visiting or maybe you're uh, newer to this, here's, here's what we want you to hear as we continue to preach through this and look at the way that God addressing this first century church 2,000 years later and what it applies to is uh, praise the Lord, they're God's people, even though this church just is a mess. There's, there's so many things wrong and so many different issues and they're dealing with all these different hurdles and stumbling blocks and yet God be praised in it and he's at work in his church. And so uh, it has this kind of way of being a letter that though it implies uh, a whole bunch of issues and sinful behaviors and problems that are going on within the congregation that in all of it I think there's an underlying encouragement for us that even a church like that doesn't have it right and so certainly we can rest in the fact that we are in a process of 
being sanctified. And we are not what we ought to be in the Lord, and yet He continues to work and continues to fashion us by the working of His Spirit within us. And so uh, that's great, and we'll continue to kind of apply that and, and push that forward. If you are somebody who's grown up in church and kind of been through the Bible, listening to sermons over the course of the years, and you've ever heard someone preach on 1 Corinthians, I think one of the reminding appeals over and over and over again, and and really uh, the typical way to walk through this letter is to look at it, and uh, and there's almost this kind of like feeling or air of superiority where we go, well, if we think that this culture is a mess and this church is a mess, just consider how much worse it was in Corinth. That you think you got problems, look at this, right? And that's generally the uh, kind of typical appeal that is made in 1 Corinthians. And we said last week that, that really we want to resist that. And, and we want to uh, resist it in such a way that we would recognize that ultimately, uh, as we unfold the issues that are going on here in Corinth, uh, you're going to see these kind of re-emerging themes that 2,000 years later look exactly the same as our churches and our culture. And so in find the rest of us doing a little bit better or doing a little bit worse, but rather writing to a specific church at a specific time has really tangible, relevant themes that are going to apply to our church 2,000 years later and all the rest of the congregations around them. And so, uh, in fact, we categorized them last week and said, you just, just watch. Watch these overarching themes begin to display themselves again and again because you have a that first is, is really struggling with the sinful culture around them. And so we, we reminded you that the city of Corinth is this kind of metropolis in the ancient world. And uh, not only that, but it was the centerpiece of many trade routes. And so you had uh, all these people from all different places sort of converging upon Corinth as it was like the quickest way to get from one side of the known world to the other, from Europe to Asia. And so in that, they would pass through. And and because of this, it left a great diversity of people and it left a great deal of immorality and all kinds of paganism that exhibited itself in all these different ways. And so even as church is formulated and begins to grow, they're struggling with how to interact with this culture that in many ways defies what God has designed for His people. And so they're kind of battling with that, and we we just kind of gave a minute to observe 2,000 years later how similar that is to us as believers in the United States, in the 21st century, that that we're kind of fighting with or or trying to interact with and know the tension between uh, being ambassadors, being in the world, being not uh, caught up in the sinful nature of the world. How do you correspond? How do you interact with that? And uh, not only that, we said uh, also you're going to see over and over again this idea of a church that had really centered in on spiritual gifting or spiritual power uh, and, and elevated that beyond spiritual fruit. And so uh, we'll talk about like what spiritual gifting looks like and how we understand and apply that in our context, in our world today, uh, but also kind of using that as an opportunity to recognize that what 
taken place there was a, a real love for this idea of, of power and magnificence and gifting over spiritual maturity and growing up to be somebody who would know and follow the Lord in all things. And then uh, lastly, what we said uh, that you see over and over again, and we're going to see this right out of the gate today, is that the church itself there was divided because it valued a whole bunch of things more than it valued the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, you would find division uh, over many different issues in the context of the church then. And let's just fast forward 2,000 years now. We see many different divisions within the church of God, the church that God's people divided over things that they have come to value more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me, let me walk you through it and show you how this begins to display itself uh, in the church in Corinth. And then let's, let's talk about why that matters for us 2,000 years later. All right, pick up with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. So, Paul has introduced in the first nine verses what we've looked at uh, himself and the church there, reminded them, we spent some time on verse 9 last week, that it is not by their good works, but that God is faithful that he has called us into fellowship with his son. And then he goes on to say this, Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that, none of, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, and I did baptize also the house of Stephanus and beyond that. I don't know whether I baptized any other for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So let's pause here. Before, before I talk about what's going on, just note uh, the beauty of the scripture. Here's, here's what's happening. Paul is in Ephesus when he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He finds out uh, from Chloe, who must have been a, a leader within the church there, and some people that are around her. The church is really kind of working through this sort of like infighting church split type of thing. And out of this, uh, he finds that the reason for it is because some of them have been divided thinking, I'm a follower of Paul, that's who's writing the letter. Some are going, well, I'm going to follower of Apollos, who happens to be the pastor and the powerful preacher who's there at the time. Others are going, I'm a follower of Cephas or Peter, who is the first uh, apostle and head of the church in Jerusalem at that time. And others go, well, I just, I just need Christ. I just follow Jesus. I don't follow any man at all. And so uh, in this, he's kind of laying out the issue and recognizing that it is caused within them not... Uh, not an understanding of unity and treasuring people for the sake of the glory of God, but a whole bunch of quarrels and people who are divided amongst one another based on who it is that leads. Now, now let me kind of give you a quick background as to how this situation came about. Uh, we looked at last week. In Acts chapter 18, Paul, the apostle, travels to Corinth. 
he arrives there, he begins preaching there, uh, some people come to know the Lord out of his preaching, get saved, a church is established there, and as it is growing, uh, Paul, unlike many of the cities where he plants churches, uh, is given uh, an opportunity by the Holy Spirit to stay there. And so he spends a year and a half there, which is longer than he spends almost any other city uh, that he writes letters to in all the New Testament. And so uh, Paul has this kind of close-knit, special relationship that is there. However, uh, in this time, he's kind of starting and establishing a church with a mindset, as Paul had in his whole life in ministry, that he's going to leave. He's going to go on. He's going to plant more churches. That's what he did. Uh, in fact, from Acts 13 until the end of the book of Acts, if you read this, uh, you'll find that the life and ministry of Paul is just to kind of go the gospel, get a bunch of people together who believe it, establish a church, and then go to the next city. And so in this vein, he has this idea uh, that he's, he's going to go. Because of this, he notes he doesn't baptize hardly anybody at this church. Now, here's the way that Paul writes. This is a little footnote as you're reading this and thinking this is kind of a weird way to write this. Uh, Paul dictates his letters, and so he's got a secretary who's writing this down for him. Uh, and at the time, the first century, paper's expensive, writing's not easy, you don't have copy machines, and you don't have erasers on pencils, right? And so uh, Paul writes this, and this is like this beautiful, inspired scripture where he's like, listen, you don't have to follow me, I didn't baptize any of you. And then, like, while he's writing, he's like, oh yeah, but I, I did... I did baptize uh, a couple. Um, I think I, I baptized uh, Gaius, right? And then uh, Crispus. And oh, yeah, there was Stephanus and his household. I baptized them too, right? Like, and he's kind of like starting to recall. Well, maybe, okay, maybe I baptize a few of you. But my point remains, you weren't baptized into my name. Why is this so important? Well, here's why. Because after Paul leaves, a guy comes in by the name of Apollos. Now, Apollos is uh, as polar opposite of Paul in stylistic demeanor as you can imagine. In fact, Paul's going to describe himself as somebody who writes powerful and weighty messages, but in person is weak and unappealing. Right? In other words, he's, he's kind of like a boring preacher, right? which is, I'm cool with that. Uh, in that, he, he has this ability to communicate really well in his letters, which are, you know, he's writing 13 letters in the New Testament. He's a pretty powerful writer, and yet in this, uh, when he shows up, there's, there's kind of this contrast between, especially imagine if you'd never met him, you've read his letters and go, man, this is a guy, this guy is powerful, this guy is an apostle of the Lord. And it's like, you know, I don't really enjoy him because he's boring and he's deep thinking, theological, really smart, kind of says stuff that's over my head and I can't even keep his attention. Did you hear about that one guy, Eutychus, who listened to his preaching, fell asleep, fell out the window and died? Like he literally bored somebody to death, right? And then, I mean, he brought him back to life, which is cool, but, but still, right? Like, and so then following him comes this guy named Apollos. And it says, Apollos is, is the opposite. He powerfully refutes and defends the faith. And so Paulo shows up in Corinth and some really marvelous things are happening at his like powerful exposition of the gospel and the word of God, except that um, he's kind of shaky at times on his theological understandings of the scripture. In fact, uh, the early uh, 
Priscilla and Aquila, who are with Paul in Corinth, have to like take him aside and, and sort of take him through like doctrine 101 classes and go, hey, it, you know, let's describe the way of the Lord a little more accurately for you because though you are captivating and appealing, you, you haven't quite gotten it right. Now, now you start to see where this, these quarrels or these divisions, 2,000 years later, continue to kind of find themselves in the church. There's, there's some, some churches, you always see, kind of see this group of people who would really desire just kind of a more academic, more weighty, more expository, explain it all, deep theological, I don't care how boring you are, just give me the heavy stuff, and don't worry about the people who might not know much about the Lord, let's, let's really get in deep type of mentality. And, and so these people have found themselves really drawn to and appealing to Paul. The problem is they've disguised this as spiritual maturity, and what they've actually just done is found themselves kind of boasting and pride. 2,000 years later, I think you see this a lot still in the church today is, is that you have these people who kind of feel like they have grown or swelled in knowledge to such a place that they would call it spiritual maturity. Uh, and many times the better word for it would be arrogance. Amen? It, and then you've got this second group. And the second group is just really looking for that person that would just inspire them. Right? And like, I'll come and I'll, I'll be at church if, if the pastor can keep me awake. And, you know, 70% of the time I'm doing the job, right? And so in that, like, that's who I want, somebody who's, who's going to be powerful and is going to have the right combination of inspirational words and a good mix of humor, but not too much. And just really say all of the right things at the right time with the right diction and the right amount of taste for me that would go well. And what we find is generally uh, that you, you just continue to exist in this spiritual immaturity that doesn't find yourself uh, seeking the Word of God, but rather wanting to be spoon-fed by somebody who's really entertaining to you. Right? And, and so 2,000 years ago, Paul and Apollo, same, same difference, and then uh, he even throws in that there's another faction or quarrel going on where there's some people who go, you know what, I, I don't like either of them. I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. Now, now Peter is, uh, from, from the early times, really kind of the chosen leader among the apostles. He becomes uh, the head pastor or senior pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And so, uh, as they go forth, Peter's kind of the final seal of approval or decision maker among the early church. And so, they're kind of looking and going, hey, we're not even going to make decisions as a local church. I appeal to some higher outside authority. And you, you watch in American churches now, and even post-Reformation, you see a whole bunch of like hierarchical authorities that don't really understand or connect with the local church. And so, you watch kind of miss of that. And then he adds this last group. And if you read commentaries, you'll find overwhelmingly that Paul isn't noting this group in a positive, but that perhaps through the most negative of all groups, he says, there's some of you who just say, I of Christ. That, that I don't belong to any man, I just belong to Christ. It's perhaps the most pious, the most arrogant of all of the groups Paul's describing. Some people who go, well, I don't need to be taught by anybody. 2,000 years later, I, I think... Uh, in fact, I think this concept would be completely foreign to the first century church. It would have been flabbergasting to, to someone like Paul that Christians exist all throughout this country, all throughout the world with no 
interest in being connected to a local church body. You know some. Right? I, I'm preaching a little bit to the choir because you're here. Um, but let me just appeal to you and, and continue to remind you that you will not grow spiritually outside of the context of the body of Christ, the local church. Uh, you can argue with me that, but, but I'm going to tell it to you again. You will not grow spiritually outside of the context of the local church, the church body. Why is that? Well, well because when you just operate on your own independently and go, I, just, I have Christ, I have the Bible, I do my own thing, I don't need anybody to instruct me, encourage me, challenge me, correct me, rebuke me. We just set up in our whole lives these echo chambers of how we live so that the things that we believe, we find ways to reinforce and then we just start reading the Bible selectively to reinforce those things that we already believe. And so the things that we believe that are wrong, we never have anybody really challenge us on. We just continue to reinforce those things. And, and think about the last year and a half, I think what you've seen in our culture is a dramatic emphasizing and reinforcing of that very concept. Amen? And so, so the problem is, 2,000 years ago, the same as today, you have divisions among the people who have found themselves valuing something, not, not a bad thing, right? Valuing church leadership, and preaching and teaching more than they value the unifying nature of the cross of Christ. And so they've found themselves kind of desiring to understand by personalities how they might uh, assess and categorize themselves rather than loving and caring for and being the church together across these lines. So, so in this then, the question becomes, all right, if this is issue number one, in fact, what we're going to see in the weeks to come is Paul is going to give a laundry list of issues and a whole bunch of things that divide, and some of them weighty and serious and heavy things, and yet this is the first one. This is the first one he picks out, because uh, in that, he wants to create some encouragement for us to recognize a system of understanding what is valuable and what is supreme in our life and how we might treasure Christ. So, so what's the encouragement in it? Well, go back with me to verse 10. Let's look at this. His recognition as he diagnoses the problem is that he would exhort them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that, and now listen to this, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That you all agree that there be no division among you and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Let's, let's talk for a minute about what that means. What, what does it mean that we would all agree and be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment? Um, I think one of the things you see in our culture is, is a value or, or a treasuring of unity and group identity without any substance for it, right? So, so what you see is a culture that wants people to get along, wants people to care about each other, wants people to be nice to each other, but in it, they don't have any shared supreme source of value or substance for that. Amen? So, so 
out of this, what happens is you have uh, in the church, out of that misunderstanding, a couple of ways that you see people respond. The first is that you get a church that finds itself going shallower and shallower and shallower in the way that it would respond to any sort of issue that happens in the culture, any sort of issue that happens in the church, any sort of topic that they might discuss so as to not find points of division and raise the level of consensus among the people. And so uh, the way that would look is if we were to come here on Sundays and I would never approach a subject that you and I might potentially disagree upon, right? Go blue. All right, so, so in that, we might, we might just find ourselves looking for the things that we could say with commonality, like go pack go, right? Like I'll give you that. The Lions have never won a game, you know, I think they're... The Lions are playing the San Francisco 49ers today. I saw the graphic yesterday. They haven't beat them since 1988. 1988, it's, I mean, some of you weren't born then, right? Like, okay. So anyways, right, we could always find ourselves orienting around things that there was commonality and consensus about. Here's the, here's the difficulty with that, is Paul says you all agree the amount of things that we have commonality and consensus about aren't many and... Typically, when we disagree about those things, the way to avoid real division or quarrels among them, according to the world, is that they would be things that just matter that much. Amen? And so, and so what we do is if we remain shallow enough, even if I say something that you disagree with, you go, yeah, but at the end of the day, who cares? Right? However, when we, when we, get to get to, when we begin to get to real things about life and culture, you start to find that this, this doesn't really hold, right? And so, so we start to talk about response to a pandemic, or you start to talk about vaccines, or you start to talk about political candidates, or you start to talk about uh, what's happening around the world, or how people are being treated, or what's a proper military response to things, right? You start to get into those issues. You're going to find a lot of consensus in our culture? If... Avery's got it, right? Okay? you got to be five years old to know that, right? So, so in this, response one of a church is, is that you just kind of avoid all those things altogether and you stay above all of that stuff and you'd never talk about anything like that. Or response number two that tends to be uh, the case and finds itself deep-rooted and sinful is, is we begin to uh, establish our churches and find our churches as places where everybody kind of looks the same and everybody talks the same and everybody acts the same and everybody votes the same and everybody thinks the same. And then what they do is they allow themselves to have these conversations knowing that ultimately they'll never disagree about any of those things. And so you find that when you do disagree about those things, maybe it's time to go find a new church. And, and so the church no longer becomes a body of diversified believers who are treasuring Christ together, but as it goes deeper and deeper, it begins to segment off and cut off sections and create quarrels so that ultimately what you have no longer is a church, you have a country club. And everybody looks the same, and everybody thinks the same, and everybody talks the same, and it's very, very comfortable. And, and yet in it, this is exactly what Paul's describing as the people who quarrel and divide among each other. 
So, so what does it look like biblically when he says that you would all agree? I don't think, based on the scriptures in totality, that he means that we ought to look at every single issue in the context of our culture, every single issue in the context of our lives, and sit down and find 100% consensus on all of them. In fact, he goes on to note what I think we're meant to do, which is bigger and deeper than that. It's agree about the one thing that provides all value to all other things. That, that we're meant to agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that the church is meant to be a place where all of these different backgrounds, those who knew Apollos, those who knew Paul, those who maybe came from Jerusalem and knew Peter, would come together for the sake of a unified body in Christ, finding the agreement on this one thing that supersedes and is deeper and bigger and affects everything else from there. Watch how he explains it, starting in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will sit aside. Where's the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness but to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men here's here's what I think Paul would say when he says that we would agree on everything and be made complete is he's looking to the cross of Christ That the church is founded on the cross of Christ and that in it, it brings about unity in diversity. It brings about a people from all different backgrounds. It brings about a people from all different ideologies. It brings about a people from all different places into harmony under subjection of the cross of Christ. That all of the wisdom in this world could not amount to what God has provided as the ultimate unifying substance, which is the cross. The gospel of the cross. Look, look at how he describes what the cross does. First of all, he says it destroys the wisdom of the wise. It, it looks, looks like this. Um, you have in the culture, in the world today, this really confounding problem. right? That We have a culture that has foundationally built itself on the idea that everybody can be right in their own opinion and their own perspective and in their own eyes. Right? Now, now the scripture repeatedly talks about the danger of such a thing, doing what is right in your own eyes. But what you will continue to see out of this is many who count themselves as wise make absolutist statements on a basis of their own perspective. Amen? 
And so uh, what is right for me is not right for you, but I'm telling you that absolutely for you, right? And so in this, you have a full wisdom of the wise, illogical basis of how we are as a culture. And what you find is that it is massively confusing and tripping on itself to understand what's going on in the world around it, is it not? And so uh, Paul notes 2,000 years ago that what the cross does is it overcomes the wisdom of even the wisest in this world. It notes that there were Jews at the time who are searching for signs from God to understand what God wanted of them. The Greek culture at the time had uh, filled the whole of the known world in the Roman Empire, seeking out wisdom, kicking around ideas, trying to figure out intellectually what this world was all about. And Paul says, the cross, deeper, bigger, greater than all all of this. Not only that, but he says that the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. That ultimately the cross becomes a unifying factor because in it is the only thing that makes you right with God. That the gospel is God's power to save, God's power to restore, God's power to redeem in the cross. That when Jesus Christ goes to a cross and dies in his innocence for our guilt, it provides the power for you and I to be saved. It supersedes, it is more valuable, it is deeper than all other things. He comes back again to the gospel as the cross. Now, the last one he says is the gospel, the cross, is for itself the strength to achieve real unity. Right? Because the power, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That ultimately, what we find as a church is the church that is united is united around the cross. That, that it is not a church that finds some sort of consensus that is called unity because it just stays shallow and meaningless. And it's not a church church that finds consensus that it calls unity because it just sifts out anybody that might disagree about any auxiliary issue. A church that achieves real unity is a church that depends on the foolishness of God in the cross, not the wisdom of men in the world. Now, let me finish with this idea. There's four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Gospel means good news, and and it's written according to four different disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? People who either followed Jesus and were eyewitnesses or were closely connected to one of the eyewitnesses. Right? And so uh, they write and compile these accounts of all that Jesus does in his life and his ministry. And here's what's fascinating about it. Um, they're long. Right? The, the gospel, four gospel accounts take up a good portion of the New Testament. Uh, you wouldn't read them in an hour. It'd take longer than that, chapter upon chapter upon chapter. Uh, and they don't include everything. In fact, John notes that at the end of his gospel. says, hey, if I was going to try to write everything Jesus did, all the books in the world wouldn't contain it. Uh, it was spectacular. And so what they did was they highlighted the things that they recalled as deeply powerful, meaningful, and consequential. But did you know this? There's not one parable that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. Not one. There are almost no miracles or miraculous things that Jesus does 
that is accounted for and recorded in all four gospel accounts. His teachings, not commonly recorded in all four gospels. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Two of the gospel writers, Mark and John, don't record it at all in their gospel account. His birth, only two record it in their gospel accounts. But you know what all four write down? All four talk about his betrayal. All four talk about his trial. All four talk about the beatings. All four talk about the cross, his death, and his resurrection. Here's here's why. Because the centerpiece of unity is the cross. That, That the church... When Paul says there should be no divisions among you, that you would be made complete in the same mind. The church is meant to have this mindset, that all things come together because of the cross of Christ. That the gospel is this, that you and I, in our power and our ability and our working, we're not okay You haven't done enough. You aren't good enough. You haven't lived perfect enough to be righteous before God. You're not there. Neither am I. But in this, God gives to us salvation. And that salvation comes in the power of the cross for those who are being saved. It is the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God, and it overcomes the wisdom of this world. That nothing in this world will ever compare to the good news of the cross. That God took His righteousness in Jesus Christ and He crucified Him and put Him on the cross absorbing the wrath of God that was due for you and for me and it was placed upon Jesus so that in faith you would be saved from your own sin. You would be saved from your own death. You would be His. And Paul starts with this because because here's the truth. It is on the deepest level what unifies the church. It is on the deepest level what gives life and breath to all men. And so so he finishes chapter 1 this way. But by his doing, by the, the grace of God, by the work on the cross, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would be a people who find our boast in you. That you would Make us a church who is continuously reminded that our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption comes from you and your work on a cross. And that it it would make us a people who grapple well with the deep and hard and 
uh, massive issues that continue to come about us in our own lives and the world around us. We wouldn't hide from those things or shy away from those things, but that you would make us complete in the cross. That we would so value, so treasure, so know the redeeming and sanctifying work of you as a as the one who takes our place, that it would would cause us to unite well for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your glory going forth into all of the earth through your church. As broken as we are, as messed up as it is, that you would use us for the praise and the honor of your name. I pray, I pray specifically, maybe there's some in here today who have never placed their faith in the cross of Christ, who have continued to make their boast in their own works, in their own ability, in their own life, doing as much as they can to earn your favor, knowing that they will endlessly fall short, that, that we're just not the people we wish we were that we have shortcomings, sins, and failures. I pray that maybe today would be a day of unique and ultimate hope. The hope that is the cross. That by your grace, you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to become wisdom, to become righteousness, to become sanctification, become redemption for those who are being saved and that they would place their faith in it today, Lord, that you save. Great news and glorious news that is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand. We'll sing one more song today.